when I grow up, know that I'll make my own mistakes. And if I slip up, please be the rock that doesn't shake. Don't you know we need somebody, just somebody to take our hand? Need somebody, somebody who will understand. We know music can be powerful. It can lift our mood. It can make us sad. It can help us concentrate, dance, exercise, and it can bring back memories. There is evidence that music can help people with dementia recover aspects of memory, feel calmer and happier too. But how long do the effects last? And is it the music itself or the familiarity with the music that's important, or both? In June last year, on this podcast, we explored the extent of brain destruction in advanced dementia when we talked to Dr. Kama Amin Ali, a dementia researcher, and Paula, who was caring for her mother with dementia. She has no idea who myself or my sister are. She recognises us, but she doesn't know who we are. She has no knowledge of people going in every day to help her. It's complete blank. She pretty much sits on her chair every day with the TV on and looks into space. So from that devastating description of change in behaviour, Cam, what's actually happening in the brain? Because earlier you said it started in the hippocampus, which is the area related to managing memories. But it sounds like more things are happening. What What would actually be happening as the dementia progresses? This is one of the complexities of these types of brain diseases that lead to dementia is, first of all, how they can affect people very differently based upon the parts of the brain that are affected by the disease. But with something like Alzheimer's disease, we know that the pathology progresses into certain areas. And as the disease progresses, it starts to affect more areas of the brain, which is why that you might initially see some memory problems but a lot of people might dismiss them as just getting older until then the disease progresses and more and more cognitive domains start to be affected. So as the disease progresses to more of the cortical areas, you might see more issues around language, around personality, and then visual spatial issues that you might see later on. So given the extent of damage in the brain with the most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's, How is it that some people with dementia can remember the words to songs when they can't even recognise their own children? This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr Hilary Geit and joining me today in conversation is podcast regular Yasmin Sakai, the global news editor at Medical News Today. Hi Yas. Hi Hilary. I'm really excited to get going with today's pod. What are you looking forward to finding out for it? Um, I think I'm looking forward to finding out whether music can be healing for people with dementia or whether music, familiar or not, has the power to restore memory and actually improve thinking and whether we should actually be incorporating music therapy into dementia care. What about you, Hilary? Well, all of the above, and I'm fascinated by the difference and similarities between sound and music and their effects on the brain. 
how much of what happens when you play music to people with dementia is the sound and how much is the music and how much the lyrics? Interesting. Well, we've got a stellar lineup of guests. Hilary, tell us about them and whether they might be able to answer some of these questions we have. Well, we've got two people. Beatty Wolf, who's a singer-songwriter. She's best known for her innovative approaches to fusing digital, technical and musical worlds, like her environmental protest piece, Green to Red, which is both a song and a visualisation of rising CO2 levels. We'll talk to her first and later we'll hear from Dr. Kelly Jakubowski, who's an assistant professor of music psychology at Durham University in the UK. And she's been researching things like earworms, you know, when a piece of music gets stuck in your ear. So before we talk to BT, tell me, Hilary, what she has to do with music and dementia. Ah, now I'm glad you asked. She's actually an ambassador for a charity called Music for Dementia, which is aiming to get music into all care homes in the UK. And I think there are similar ones like that in the US. The charity arose out of some research she conducted to show that even unknown music was helpful in dementia, so no familiarity. She visited care homes in the Priory Group all around the UK, playing live music and then leaving people with MP3 players, so this was back in 2014, to listen to the music for the next four months. That was the video called The Power of Music, yes? Yeah. And we watched where people in those care homes, they were tapping their feet, clapping their hands, singing along. Their eyes were absolutely shining when they were listening to this music. Yeah, you're so right. When myself and Yaz talked to BT, we decided to start understanding music and dementia, not by asking her about sound and music, but actually asking her about her experience of silence to see what light that sheds on how our brains respond to sound. Now, BT, you spent some time in a chamber with no sound, an anechoic chamber, where you recorded your album Raw Space. Now, what was that like? It was one of the most profound experiences I think I've ever had. And it's something that I continually return to even now. It feels like it's almost become more relevant today as the world's just got noisier, you know, both literally in terms of sonically, but also informationally. You know, we're getting bombarded from all angles with social media and notifications and all of these things that are hitting us that are kind of frazzling us. And I think that a lot of the core experiences of life, art, nature, these things are sort of getting lost in the noise. So yeah, I ended up spending, I think it was a hundred hours or more in the world's quietest room, the Bell Labs anechoic chamber, and you feel silence. It's almost like you feel this entire sensory reset and your nervous system calms down and you hear sound in this pure way with no EQ and no reverb and no enhancements. And you realize, yeah, we, we use technology almost now so excessively to iron out all of these things that are actually what make us human beings to begin with. Was it not freaky at all? Did you not hear your heart beating or a tinnitus or any of that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah. I, so when I went in there, I was with one of the Bell Labs engineers who really was just showing me this chamber as a kind of, you know, hey, you should come check this out. 
And I had no plans of doing a project in the chamber at that point, but I was told that I'd probably be able to stay in there 15 minutes because, you know, you hear the blood rushing through your veins and the engineers typically had to take breaks because it was so intense. And I ended up being in there for that first time for several hours, just found it so calming. Maybe I'm an anomaly, but I had the opposite reaction to, I guess, that, you know, freak out that people have, which I think is also about really being with yourself. I do think there's an element of in the chamber, you are there very much with yourself. There are no distractions. There's nothing to pull you out of that internal space, really. So you've described your experience there, but were there any any sounds that you didn't really like? Well, the thing about it is there really is no sound in there unless you produce it. So when you're in that space, you know, if you're talking, you're having a conversation, it's really fascinating because the silence is so profound. You become acutely aware of every word you're saying. And it's almost like, is what I'm saying worth breaking the silence? It makes you very conscious and very present. And then playing music in there, we get so used to a room sort of softening a sound, having reverb, having a certain like good acoustics. And of course the chamber doesn't have any acoustics. So that was interesting because music was almost so raw and so pure and almost like you'd say too raw. And I think the fact that like it's so directional. So if I'm looking at you and I'm playing music, you can hear something, but if I turn 90 degrees right or left, it's almost like the sound completely drops off. So I I guess I just found it, I found it fascinating. And I, I almost, the ugly sounds I loved because it's like AIing images to the point that they're no longer what the original image is. I think we've gone really too far in taking out the, the cracks really in life. I wonder whether or not you had such a different experience because of being a musician. I mean, as preparation for this, myself and Yaz been reading about the dementia-inducing effects of massive environmental sound. You know, people brought up near motorways, even taking out the impact of pollution. And what you're describing is something, that essence of focus if children are brought up with a cacophony of sound, they have a cacophony of, of internal sound and can't pick out, like you were describing there, individual sounds and that focus. Is that something that rings true? I think that's fascinating. I think that's definitely true. I do have a high sensitivity to sound. I think also I just I am a highly sensitive individual anyway, but sound definitely, if there are you know, loud noises or certain frequencies. I really can't be in certain environments that are like that. So I think in that way, definitely almost beyond whether I was a musician or not, but just having that sensitivity to sound, I think that really impacted my experience. Let's bring Dr. Kelly Jakubowski in here. She researches music and memory at Durham University in the UK. I asked her about how silence and sound affects brain health. 
So silence is quite an important aspect of our lives and, and often we don't get enough of it, right? So we're often inundated with sounds in our daily lives. When we go into shops and supermarkets and pubs and so on, there's often lots of background noise. There's often music and all sorts of beeps and sounds playing. And one actually common example is in hospitals. There's often so many beeps and sounds going on that this actually has been shown to have detrimental impacts on people's mental health. So actually silence is something that is kind of undervalued in today's society. But it's been shown that having some moments of silence, you know, to reflect during one's day can connect to these ideas of mindfulness and improving our, our sort of mental health and well-being and so on. So there is, of course, some value to be obtained from some moments of silence uh, throughout one's daily life and, and so on in, in terms of our brain health. Moving on to the idea of sound in general, soundscapes can be very diverse, right? And there's various sounds that exist in our daily environment that we find annoying or detrimental. So if you're, say, working in a kind of mechanical or factory setting or something like this, this can actually impact negatively if you're in this constant noisy environment on your mental health over the course of time. But obviously there's some sounds that can be really useful to us as well, right? So it's been shown that engaging with nature sounds and white noise and so on can improve aspects of mental health and well-being, can improve sleep quality and so on. So obviously sounds range quite dramatically across the spectrum in terms of how they impact us and with lots of differences across people as well, of course. And so in terms of sound that speech, that's been found to be helpful for reducing social isolation, but also having a direct impact on brain health. Yeah, sure. So speech can be quite useful and positive in various ways. And also, yeah, provides that sense of connection with other people and, and so on. Yeah. And there's growing evidence, I think, about wearing hearing aids it's not clear whether it's the cognitive decline that makes people not wear their hearing aids or whether actually wearing the hearing aids is a positive thing but actually having speech in your life and not being socially isolated is obviously a positive thing Yes, you were going to come in yes so what i want to know is what's actually happening in our brains when we hear sounds does sound travel through a single pathway from the ear to the auditory cortices in the brain? Or is it a lot more complicated than that? Well, it can be a lot more complicated than that. It really depends on what type of sound you're talking about. But hearing a sound it travels through the ear, through the cochlea, and is mapped then into the auditory cortex. But of course, many sounds that we encounter will also engage other areas in the brain. So they might elicit some sort of emotional response, which then is activating deeper structures within the brain. Sounds can activate memories. So this activates deeper structures, again, like the hippocampus and so on within the brain. So obviously, when we're listening and engaging with sounds, there's various other levels of processing going on, whether that be sort of emotional related or memory related or processing the meaning of words that activates various other areas in the brain and so on. So it depends on, I suppose, our personal responses and our personal level of engagement and familiarity and various other factors as well. What Dr. Kelly said there about sound levels in hospitals impacting on mental health, 
that really rings true for me. My auntie, who is 99 and a half, recently had to go into a care home because she was too frail to move. And the care staff, they were so kind and the home was just amazing. But every resident in the home had a call and fall alarm. They were so sensitive. They were just going off all the time and they would cascade the beep and bleeps all the way down the corridor like a pack of braying wolves searching for a nurse or carer. I have no idea how the staff coped or the residents. But let's move on to hear what we learnt about music and our brains. Is music just a particular form of sound or is there something more fundamentally different? Beattie told us what she feels when she hears music. I feel like music is the most powerful instant connector, you know, almost of any experience and of the arts. You know, I think the arts in general are just so powerful medicinally. But I think music has this ability because it's all pervasive. It's not something that requires the person to get up and dance or draw or it's someone can just absorb the frequencies and the words and this whole soundscape. For me, definitely music was always this kind of powerful resource that I used to feel good or really like kind of used it like for mood control or you know whatever however you describe it but also to open up all these worlds you know I feel like it's such a portal into these other dimensions so yeah I feel like music is also so little understood still you know music in the brain we know so little about it we're just really scratching the surface of knowledge there and so you know when you have seen the responses I've seen to music, you have infinite respect and appreciation for it beyond entertainment. There's so much in there. Music as a social connector, as a mood modulator, the link with words in a song, and that it all goes beyond entertainment. Yes. So I discuss with Dr. Kelly about what we do know about music and the brain and the importance of lyrics over and above the music itself. Engaging with music is often described as a quote-unquote whole brain activity. So music seems to be particularly effective at engaging lots of diverse pathways within the brain. So when we listen to music, similarly to what I said before, we don't just hear it as a sort of isolated sound in the auditory cortex. It activates emotions, it activates memories. We often cannot listen to music without having some sort of um, implicit motor response. So even when we're actually just passively sitting and listening to music, the motor regions in our brain, like the cerebellum, are activated. And so music is really interesting because it activates essentially every area of our cortical, our higher level regions in the brain, but it also taps into these deeper structures in the brain related to emotion processing, memory processing, and what we call the reward centers in the brain, which are the areas that are activated by things like food and sex and drugs. So (laughs) sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I suppose. So how important are lyrics for our response to music? Does that change the outcome? Does it stimulate different pathways in the brain when there are lyrics compared to instrumental pieces, for example? Sure. So there are obviously some different responses. So our language centers in the brain may be more activated than when you have lyrics within music. 
but even instrumental music activates, like I said, sort of emotion regions and so on. But obviously lyrics then add this extra layer of some sort of meaning and semantic processing and, and, and so on. It's fascinating. So where is the cutoff between speech and music? Is it frequency? Is it modulation? Is it rhythm? Well, that's a very complex question. And I would say that not everyone agrees on the answer to that question. And it it will vary across cultures as well, right? So in Western culture, we often say music should have pitch and it should have rhythm. But you'll find other cultures in the world where the main traditions are drumming traditions that don't have much pitch to it at all. So I think we can define what music is in our context to us personally, but different people will have different definitions. There's actually something that's been studied within music psychology called the speech to song illusion, which is basically if you take a snippet of spoken text. So the phrase that was actually originally used was something about that language sometimes behaves so strangely. And then they just took this and sometimes behaves so strangely, sometimes behaves so strangely. And if you repeat that over and over, it actually turns into a song. (laughs) So actually repetition seems to be one of the elements that makes music, music. That speech to song illusion is so interesting. So it seems that repetition in song is an important element in recognising music. But let's go back to where this all started for BT with her experience in music and dementia. I was dipping in and out of musicophilia, reading these incredible case studies. BT was inspired by the work of Oliver Sacks, who describes a number of case studies in his book, Musicophilia, showing dramatic responses when people were played familiar music, but he hypothesised that the music itself was an actor over and above familiarity. Using music in a way that I thought was almost the most profound and really the best case for music that there was in terms of bringing people back from these very extreme conditions. Beattie's interest in the power of music came out of direct observation of her experience of playing original songs in English in a Portuguese nursing home. Around that time, I found out that my family members were developing dementia. And so I thought, well, you know, why don't I take my guitar next time I'm going to Portugal to see my father-in-law or to San Diego to see my grandma? And I'll just play some songs and, you know, maybe it will do some good, maybe it won't, but why not try? And in both cases, it was unbelievable. And the change, you know, was so incredible. And actually in the case of my father-in-law, I was going to play just to him, but I ended up playing to this whole ward of a hundred or so people with dementia and Alzheimer's who were all Portuguese. None of them spoke English apart from this relative And I was playing new songs, songs in English that they didn't have any prior connection with. And I was seeing, you know, people singing along as much as they could, you know, and clapping and waking up. And after I witnessed that, I felt like I had to take it further. And that's what became the research project in the UK. I asked Beatty how she chose her playlist for that research in the care homes in the UK. It seems one song in particular got people singing and clapping along. I think the thing I did, which I feel is kind of key in all of this, is I played a set like I would play anywhere. Because I think sometimes when people have a condition or an illness, 
we can make them the other rather than thinking, well, yeah, this is a human being that's just, you know, struggling to connect in a way that we understand. And so I wanted to do a set that I would play normally as in this is just the set of songs that I, I feel are, are a good set of songs. And I was chatting in between and telling little stories and anecdotes about those songs. And there was definitely a few, but particularly one that every time, wherever I ended up playing it, this one song, Wish, because of the rhythm and because in some ways there was a familiarity to the melody that people could then kind of join in on, that was one that always was profound in terms of the, the reactions. You know, I saw someone who was catatonic getting up and dancing to that song. I asked Dr. Kelly what she thought it was about the song Wish that made people that didn't know it want to join in. So I think um, there's a lot of elements of the structure of this music that kind of invite participation. Each phrase is a couple seconds long and you can kind of predict what the next word or the next rhyme might be, which is really nice for kind of encouraging people to try and sing along. There's a lot of repetition. So a lot of phrases that start with the word wish, wish, wish. <laughs> um, so you kind of start to anticipate. So it provides this kind of really nice scaffold for people to be able to join along. It provides these expectations for people. And then also um, the rhythm of the music as well, right? So there's a very clear beat. The tempo of the piece of music is actually very close to what we call the sort of preferred tempo for humans. So we have um, what we call a spontaneous motor tempo, which is basically if I ask you to just tap a beat without hearing anything, usually people will tap around sort of 120 beats per minute, which is around the speed of that piece of music. So actually... It's a very easy piece to clap along with because we feel comfortable clapping at that speed. So I think that invites participation as well. There's some elements where she's also just singing, oh, 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 oh. That kind of element also invites participation where if you don't have complicated lyrics and you occasionally have this, oh, 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 that's quite easy to kind of grasp. And, you know, even if you don't have full sort of language capacities, you can sing along to, oh, 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 as well. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of um, really um, nice elements within that song that can help people and provide a clear scaffold for them to join along. And when you get people who actually do know the lyrics of a song, people with dementia seem to be able to recall words of the song, but can't even pull up their own children's names. I know we've talked about this sort of globality of music in the brain but you know the repetition of a child's name is something that's happened through life whereas the song may be once a month or you know once a year how can we explain that yeah so I think part of that ability to fill in words of songs is related to the idea of sort of procedural memory so 
Procedural memory is something like remembering motor sequences, like being able to ride a bike, which we, you know, we have that common saying, you never forget how to ride a bike. So people might not have this kind of semantic memory anymore for names and places and so on, but they still have memory for the sort of motor sequence of singing along lyrics, probably because they've sang along to that song lots of times before, or at least sang along in their minds lots of times before to that piece of music. And we see this kind of sparing in procedural memory in kind of different ways in dementia. So sometimes we see this in playing music as well. So if someone had played the piano previously, often they can continue to play those familiar pieces on the piano, even quite far into the disease. But we also see that in terms of being able to sing familiar melodies as well. So even if they're not trained musicians, often you get this response of a procedural memory for the lyrics of a song. Beattie performed this song and others live as part of her research and then left MP3 players with the songs on them for the next four months. I thought the live performance itself might be more impactful, but Yaz thought that listening to MP3s over headphones might be more impactful. I was watching the clips and everybody kind of had headsets on. So I think that kind of gives people a more immersive experience, maybe. Maybe it kind of gives them a chance to kind of look inwards a bit more and kind of, I don't know, I always think whenever you have headphones on, music has a a larger effect, a more significant effect on you. It can send shivers down your spine, give you goosebumps. It's just something about, it kind of feels like it's uh, echoing in your brain. I think it's both. I really feel, and this is something also in terms of like familiar, unfamiliar, or whatever, I feel like human beings often get caught on what is better. Oh, is that is this better than that? And it's really just like, look, music is so powerful. For some people, it will be a live performance. You know, like I mentioned, I saw someone that was nonverbal breaking out into song, having not said a word in seven months. And she did that in a live performance or the guy got up and danced. But then equally listening to the songs on headphones, like you said, there are people that find that more immersive and more kind of like it it really speaks to them. I think definitely the thing that was powerful was doing the live performance, which kind of was like the anchor. And then people were listening to the same songs on headsets because it was like returning to something they'd also experienced live. By the sound of things, it sounds like either might work in his personal preference. The point is that there does seem to be a positive response to music. Exactly. The question I had for Dr. Kelly, though, is how long this response lasts. It's a great question. So I think at some point you need more music, right? So I think you hear music And then you can't expect there to be a kind of lasting benefit forever for years later because you heard one song (laughs) three years ago. It seems that having more sustained engagement with some kind of music has more benefit than hearing music and then never hearing it again. But that being said, engaging with music can be done on various levels, right? So even listening to recorded music in a kind of regular way has lasting benefits for people with dementia in terms of various effects and reducing agitation, reducing apathy, improving mood, sometimes enhancing the sense of identity and and so on. So I think there's different ways you can engage with music. There's various care homes within the UK and various other places that also have regular music therapy embedded into dementia contexts. 
which I think is kind of ideal scenario that someone's engaging with an actual music therapist in live music on a, a weekly or regular basis. I think there's a lot to be said about encouraging such programs and really trying to get as much regular and sustained engagement with music over time as well. Dr. Kelly, can you tell us about your work on music evoked autobiographical memories, so memes for short, in relation to music therapy in care homes for people with dementia? Sure. So I've been researching this phenomenon of memes in general in the, the sort of healthy population, but there's lots of various implications for music evoked autobiographical memories and their connection to dementia as well. So one thing we found in this research is that in various studies, we compared music to other types of cues for autobiographical memories. So we presented other types of sounds and words and so on. And we found quite consistently across several studies that music tends to, across the board, evoke more positive memories from our lives than other cues. So I think this is one clear potential therapeutic benefit is that this music seems to be a particularly effective cue for bringing us back to positive memories from our lives. And this actually seems to be even boosted further in older adults. So we find also consistently when we look at comparisons of young to older adults, older adults have even more positive memories evoked by music than younger adults. So I think both this connection in terms of music being potentially a more effective cue for positive memories, but also uh, cueing more positive memories in older adults speaks to the therapeutic power of music and encourages more research to be done in this area, expanding these findings into populations with dementia and especially into the later stages. So a lot of the research that's been done on dementia and music-evoked autobiographical memory has really been done on mainly early stage Alzheimer's, actually. But I think we need to continue studying across the spectrum as well. I think I was interested in the crossover recruitment from specific music memories to general memories and functionality in people with dementia. So you're asking basically if this can improve general memory function. Or delay the progression of dementia. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that we know yet that music can delay the progression of memory decline. I think there needs to be more research done in that area. We have this idea within memory research of chaining. So when music or any cue activates a memory, that can then activate other memories that are related to that and so on. So the idea is that, you know, if music can evoke a memory related to that, music that might also help us bring back other memories from that time period or memories that are linked and so on. So if music is able to effectively even cue one memory, there seems to be more hope that it can actually tap into some of those other memories in our life store and so on. But I think, you know, beyond that, the importance of autobiographical memories is that when we are able to recall even, you know, a snippet of something from our lives, it really kind of enhances our sense of identity and personhood and reminds us of who we are and where we came from. And that's quite important to people who have some semblance of memory loss, because then they feel stuck in the moment and they can't reconnect with their past selves, which can then impact their mental health and so on. And this also, the sense of reconnecting with sense of personhood and past also influence carers as well and family members 
So seeing that kind of glimpse of the person you used to know is really, really important also for the mental health of family members and carers. And even, um, say, care staff in a care home, it helps them to kind of realize, you know, this is still a person and, you know, they have a past and they have this rich history. I mean, I think there's so much evidence about this impact on quality of life. But are there any downsides to music in people with dementia? Yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So I suppose there are potential downsides of music for any person, regardless of whether they have dementia, in that occasionally music can be, for instance, linked to a traumatic memory from your life. And this could happen in dementia as well. Or even if it's not a traumatic memory, it could remind one of a funeral or a loss of a family member and so on. So, you know, we need to be careful when we're thinking about selecting music that we think about these things. Obviously, preference plays a large role here as well. So, you know, just selecting any music across the board doesn't necessarily work in terms of managing symptoms of dementia. So if someone absolutely hates (laughs) some music, it's less likely to be effective for managing agitation and, and mood. And so I think, you know, we do have to think quite carefully about what type of music is selected in terms of music therapy and music listening experiences and so on, especially if it's sort of situation in which a person doesn't have personal choice if they kind of can't communicate to you what they want. This comes back to what we talked at the at the very beginning of the conversation, right? That sometimes sounds in our environment can be detrimental and annoying. So we don't want to just make people listen to music that they don't particularly like or don't connect to and play that to them endlessly where they can then actually maybe have a negative reaction. So music therapists often think very carefully about selecting music that they use in their sessions. If the person with dementia can't communicate anymore, they often talk to lots of their family members and find out a sort of rich picture of their history and what kind of music they did like and they did listen to previously and and so on. We also asked Beattie the same challenging question, whether there could be any downsides to music in dementia. You know, Hilary, I don't think, I know, I yeah, I, it's a, it is a challenging question to ask and answer because we like to say, you know, all music is great. <laughs> I do feel that acoustic instrumentation and the human voice and you know, there are certain things that never go out of fashion. Almost anyone can listen to Nina Simone or the Beatles. And I have my own radio show here in LA called Orange Juice for the Years, where I bring in all these different guests from all over the world in different fields. And I ask them five questions that I think would make up their Orange Juice for the Years, which is the first song that imprinted, the first record that shaped who they are, the music they'd send into space, the song they'd have at their funeral and the record they'd pass on to the next generation. And that really gives them and me an idea of like, this is the music you'd go to if you were struggling. That That's the music that would unlock you. And it's honestly amazing. So many different people and yet the choices are often pretty similar. And so I think there is something in that, which is it's often pre-digital. It's when it was physical records or CDs or tapes. It's when you had that whole experience and also the presence for it to really go in. And I think it's also the music that is dynamic. It's not all compressed. It's not all electronic and very much 
hitting those frequencies that are the ear sugar frequencies that kind of cut above all other noise. Yeah. I've got a sixth question for you, uh, which is slightly offbeat. And I'm going to ask everyone this. So what music would you like to hear if you were ever in a care home with dementia? I'll start because you mentioned Leonard Cohen, who's my all time fave, and I could listen to him all, all day. So, BT, what would you, what would be your dementia song? Is it one song? Just one. Okay. One um, track. One track. Or, or an artist. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just going to choose it. And this isn't a, this isn't the perfect answer at all. But the first thing that came to mind so it's David Bowie and Tina Turner singing Tonight, which was a song that Bowie and Iggy Pop wrote together. And there's just, there's something so, it's such a sort of cheesy, you know, no no Bowie people would choose it, but there's something about him and her singing this. And it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's really, yeah, I choose, <laughs> I choose that. That's good. I asked Dr. Kelly the very same difficult question. That's a good question. I'm a violinist, so because of my training and connecting to that style of music, I would probably listen to some of the works by Bach. I love J.S. Bach for violin because that also connects to my sort of teenage years and what I was really kind of learning a lot during that time. And uh, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, if I was in a care home, I could still play the violin, but we'll see. (laughs) And yes. Well, I grew up between bars, uh, so lots of R&B, soul, um, lots of bachata, salsa music. I think um, I just want something that I could dance to and hopefully I'd still have the mobility, even in my kind of old age. I feel I have to ask about growing up between bars. Yeah, well, when you grow up in a touristic seaside town and you've got kind of bars to your right and your left, you don't sleep until four o'clock in the morning or it becomes your kind of lullaby. So that's how it came to be. (laughs) Many thanks to Beatty Wolf and Dr. Kelly Jakubowski. And Yasmin, thank you very much for joining me. Ah, thank you. And of course, thank you for listening. You can read Yaz's feature about music and dementia on medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be back next month talking about whether or not we can reverse type 2 diabetes. And if you happen to be in London in June, you can catch BT Wolf's new exhibition called Imprinting at Somerset House. I'm really excited because I think it really illuminates and conceptualizes what the brain is like. And you're listening to the brain stations using these retro telephone phones. So it's very nostalgic as well. And yeah, the music dementia component, the neurological learnings I've had through that and from working with Stanford and different researchers and people, but also it's very creative and it's very playful and Music for Dementia are part sponsoring or supporting this installation. So that's great. The music in this episode was Need Somebody and Wish by Beatty Wolf. Thanks to Beatty for that. And also thanks to Amelia Parks for her amazing help in producing this episode. I'm Dr Hilary Guite and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today. If I stray
from the one that you love darling no i won't drift too far from your arms darling you bring me back to myself to myself darling you're that someone who will make me live on darling you're my someone who will make me live on